0: (laughs) Oh, I like being here. Um, Hope you do too. Uh, We are going to jump back in to our study of the book of Luke. So I encourage you to grab a Bible, um, pull out the app on your phone. If you want a hard copy version, we've got some on the end of some rows. You can ask your neighbor for one. We'll be in Luke 18. That's where we find ourselves today. On the home stretch, we will be going through the book of Luke all the way through Easter. It's April 1st, and then the week afterwards. um, And then we'll uh, dive into some other fun and exciting things that I look forward to talking about in the weeks and uh, months to come. So, Luke 18 is where we are. I'm going to read three verses for you. going to really mess you up this morning. Uh, Verse 1 of chapter 18. Verse 9 of chapter 18. And verse 17, just random numbers I like, so I thought I'd just pick out the numbers. Um, Actually, no, I'm going to read them because they have purpose. Verse 1, verse 9, verse 17, Luke chapter 18. I'm going to read those, and then I will pray. Luke chapter 18, verse 1 says this. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and therefore treated others with contempt. And then verse 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that in this moment, you love for us to talk to you. I thank You that You invite us into a relationship with You and that You don't want anything to stand in the way of us surrendering completely and asking boldly and giving our whole hearts to You. And so right now, Father, I just ask, I ask that You would remove any barriers between us and You that would leave us depending on ourselves And not calling out to you in prayer. Father, I beg of you. May we leave here more mindful of your goodness and glory. And more excited and resolved to be still and pray to you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, there are some times when you just don't want to talk to people. Have you ever had those moments? Now, this is not just for the introverts in the room. I mean, some of you are ready to shout a loud amen, but you were introverted, so you didn't. (laughs) So, this is for extroverts, too. That there are some times when you just don't want to talk to anybody. You've had those moments, right? Okay, come on, yeah, okay, we're just, we're here for dialogue, here for interaction. Okay, so, like, if... You lose like a a sporting event, a basketball game, or you lose like a card game or something like that. Sometimes you can be so invested in those moments, and it's not for all of you, but some of you, that you want to withdraw and you don't want to talk to anybody because if you do, you might explode on them. And that might be a good thing that you don't want to talk to anybody. Sometimes uh, if you're taking a test and while you're taking the test, you realize, okay, I didn't study so well, and then the grade proves that you didn't study so well. You get embarrassed. You don't want to talk to people. What would you make? Eh, it's not that important. You know, <laughs> You know, you just kind of shove it down. Keep it going. You get these times when maybe you've done something wrong and you're embarrassed and you don't want to talk about it. There are other times when you feel like nobody understands you. You feel like you're not being heard. Somebody has hurt you or you don't trust someone. And so you don't talk to them. And you want to shut it down. And we do all of these things, not just to others in the room or in our lives, but sometimes we do it to God as well. Sometimes when we wish we could change a circumstance and we try to fix it ourselves and we realize we can't, we get frustrated. We don't want to talk to God about it. Sometimes we do something legitimately wrong. We don't want to share that wrong with anybody because it's embarrassing to say, I was wrong, I'm guilty. So we don't talk to God about it. Sometimes, because things have gone horribly wrong or are very difficult in your life, you don't trust God. You wouldn't say it that boldly, but deep down you know it's true. You don't trust Him. You're afraid He's not going to do good to you. And so you don't want to talk to Him. You just stay distant. You keep it moving. And all I want you to know is that in these moments when you feel like there are reasons not to talk to God, God is speaking to us in Luke 18 to say this. Don't let anything stand in the way of talking to me. Don't let anything stand in the way of talking to me. I want to be with you. I'm approachable. I am trustworthy. I love you. He is saying to us today, don't let anything standing stand in the way of you talking to me. Now, as we look at Luke 18, there are three major sections um, that we have uh, that we're going to look at, two of which we've actually looked at several times in the past. What I'm hoping to do with this chance is to look at it and apply it in a little bit of a different way, because although God's meaning is the same, the application is multifaceted like a diamond, because our lives are different and they hit us in different ways at different times. And so what I want to look at in these moments right here is that we have a God who teaches us through Luke 18. That there are many reasons why we say, I cannot go to you. Or I will not stop and I will not pray. And we have a God who says, I want you to keep coming to me. Don't give up. Don't let anything stand in the way of talking to me. So look at chapter 18, verse 1. And it says this. And he told them a parable to the effect, or in order that... They ought always to pray and not lose heart. This word ought to. You've got the ought to's. What is, what does it mean if something, if you ought to do something? It means it's necessary. It literally says in, in the original languages, it says, it is necessary to pray. You need it. But when you hear that, sometimes you can just feel like. Well, that's just one more to do. That's just one more religious burden. But do you think that way if I say you need to eat? Like some of you, you didn't eat breakfast and you're hungry right now. You're hoping I finish quickly so you can go scarf down some food. And so if I say you need to eat, you think, hey, he's a pretty good guy. Yeah, you need to eat. So ought twos are not always bad. Like if I say you need to drink some water or you'll get dehydrated and you'll get a headache that doesn't mean I'm against you, right? That means I like you. I want you to be hydrated. There's a lot of ought to's that are good for you. Like, I want you to go, I think you should spend more time at rest. You're like, yeah, that's exactly right. I need more rest time. Uh, tell everybody else that, including my boss. I need rest time. Whatever it is, when we look at this ought to, the problem with prayer, the problem with prayer is is It's not that busyness is our problem. It's that it's not a priority. It's not seen as life-giving. And therefore, there's all these things that stand in the way of us just hearing a tender father say, I want to be with you. I want to talk to you. I want to hear from you, and I want you to hear from me. And so he says, I don't want anything to stand in the way of you talking to me. And so what we're going to look at are, what are some of the things that stand in the way of us going to our Heavenly Father in prayer? What are some things that stand in the way of us going to our Heavenly Father in prayer? Let's look at the first one. The first one might be called weariness. Weariness. And I get it from the very first verse. He told them a parable. In order that, so he's going to tell this story. Parable is a story that has a meaning that, by those who have spiritual ears that want to hear, they can understand it. From those that don't have ears to hear, those who have hardened themselves, it'll be hard to understand, confusing. So he tells them a parable for this purpose that they would always pray. What's always pray. It's the sense of it. It's to characterize your life. It's just as you go about, just as you have to walk every single day, just as you have to eat every single day, there's this sense of it just characterizes what you do. it's, It's what it means to be a spiritual human. It's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You just, you're praying. You're a praying person. And yet he says, that they always, they ought always to pray and not lose heart. What does it mean to lose heart? What does it mean to lose heart? It's when you get tired. It's when you're ready to give up. It's when sadness comes at you. And you're like ready to throw in the towel. Or you're cynical and, and every thing just got to have a secondary agenda on the back end. So I just don't know if I can believe this so you just you struggle and you just want to give up or maybe you have what's called the johnny rain cloud syndrome where like everything that you look at it really has kind of a cloud over it it's kind of negative in your perspective you know like if i say it's sunny outside and you say no it's cold i was like okay both are true but isn't it sunny and I say, I say, isn't it nice and warm in here? And you say, yeah, but it usually isn't. Oh. <laughs> if, you're, if you're a guest, just wait. Come on back. <laughs> Some of you, I say, you're glad, I'm glad you've got a job. And you say, yeah, but it's it's a horrible one. Or I say, I'm glad you have a friend to walk with you through this. Or I'm, I'm glad you've got a spouse that's with you. But And you say, yeah, but they're hard to live with. There's this sense of Weariness talks like that. Weariness struggles to see where God is at work. Struggles to find things to be thankful for. Weariness is something, it's different than fatigue. Fatigue can be solved by seven or eight hours of sleep. Weariness, you you go to sleep and you wake up and you still feel heavy. Weighed down. Jesus says, I'm telling you this story so that you would... Always pray and not give up. Not give in to the weariness, not throw in the towel, not say I'm done. And you know why? Because he knows that in the spending time with him, you begin to be changed. He begins to give hope. When God's a part of the equation, hope is always a part of the equation. When you remove him, when you struggle to go to him, then of course you get more Hopeless, dismal, despairing. But here's the one we're going to, Jesus. He knows what it's like to feel sad or to weep over some of the loss of a loved one, like his friend Lazarus, who died. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood and to be ridiculed unjustly, to be oppressed. He knows what it's like to want something to go another way, and it not go that way. These are the things that can lead to weariness. He knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to have to wait. I don't know if you ever thought about this. Jesus is God. That is a true statement. And he had to wait for 30 years before basically the package was opened. And for 30 years, he lived a mundane, simple Carpenter-type life. He learned. He was told what to do by parents. He had to deal with relationship issues. He just lived life as normal. He walked streets. He ate food. 30 years he waited for the package of his godness to kind of begin to leak out. And I get weary when I wait for 30 minutes. We all do. The point is God wants us to go to him because he understands. That's the point of the the fancy word is the incarnation. That's the point of Jesus coming to us and living the life that we couldn't live and dying the death that we deserve is to say he understands. So come to him. Why don't we pray? Sometimes it's because of weariness. And he says don't let that be a barrier. Don't let anything stop you from talking to me. What's another one? Unworthiness. Look at the story. Verse 2. So remember, he tells this story so that they would always pray. They would be characterized by prayer and not lose heart, not go weary, not give up. Verse 2, he says, so here's the story. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow In that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversaries. Now, why did he choose a widow? He could have chosen a couple. He could have chosen a rich person. He could have chosen a business executive. He could have chosen anybody. Why did he choose a widow? Because a widow is the picturesque person of one who is marginalized, estranged, and poor. Luke does this all the time. Some of you might be like, why do we talk about the poor all the time? Well, let's make sure you kind of understand. Here's the way the Bible rolls in in terms of talking about the poor. You start at the beginning, and it goes like this, on on this little tick meter of... When it addresses poverty, the first five books are pretty full of it. And then you keep going, and it addresses it a little bit. And then you go to Isaiah, and it spikes a little bit, and Jeremiah. And then you go to the Minor Prophets, and it spikes some. And then you come into the New Testament, and it goes like this. And when you get to Luke, it literally does this. Beep, 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 beep. It's like all over the place. Uniquely and intentionally, Luke wants his reader To have a keen eye towards the marginalized, the estranged, and the poor. Because he knows it will change how you view God, how you view yourself, and how you live. It will make you humble. It will help you to analyze your sin in ways that you never would. Were you not to collide with those who believe they're not valuable, or who are told that they're not important. And so who does he use? He uses a widow. Why does he choose a widow? Because she has no asset to bring but her persistence when it comes to this judge. You get a rich man, he can pay off the judge. The judge will render a verdict a little quicker to bring some justice. What's this woman have? She has nothing to bring but herself and her persistence. She's poor. She's estranged. And look at what it says. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, I'm in verse 4, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps, what's the next two words? Bothering me. I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual nagging, basically. Do you see how this woman is being viewed? She's a bother." She's in the way, and yet our God says, no, 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 I want you to come to me in prayer. You're not a bother. On the contrary, Deuteronomy 32.10 says this. He says, this is how God views us. He says, and God encircled them, that is his people, and he cared for them as the apple of his eye. It's, It's like he looks at us and he says, You are central to my affections. You are my prized possession. I love you. You're not in the way. You're not a bother. You're valuable to me. And it is the case for many who are abused or treated improperly that they believe that their lives don't matter that much. They struggle to feel any sense of worth or value. They believe the lies they've been told, which is you're just an object rather than a person. And they're told they're not valuable because they're not powerful, because they don't have. That's why I'm thankful with some of this movement of hashtag me too, where some of these stories are coming out, and women are feeling like their story does matter. And people are able to share. Because when this judge looks at this woman, she is not granted justice because her voice matters, but because she's getting in the way. Our God is not like that. Our God says, you're not a bother. You're valuable. And even though you feel unworthy, I want you to come to me. Always pray. And don't give up. Because you're the apple of my eye and I proved it by giving my son for you. You are valuable. You are precious. You're not an object. You're a person. A person to be loved. And so men, women, all ethnicities, equal in value and significance and worth. You all have a voice and God says, I want you to use it to call out to me. Another barrier. If it's weariness, it's one. Unworthiness is another. Another barrier might be oppression from others. Look at what she's praying for. Look at verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my oppressors, against my adversaries. And so what's she praying for? She is experiencing those who are making life hard on her, who are oppressing her, who are going against her. Now she doesn't let that keep her from coming. And that's the example. The example Jesus is putting before us is Don't stop coming just because things are hard. Come after me. Go after me. But we know how it happens, don't we? When we experience suffering, when we experience oppression, we believe God has left us. Like He's gone on vacation. Like He doesn't care. Or at least sometimes we think He's got more important things to do. And so the oppression and the suffering lead us to feeling estranged. And we don't want to talk to him anymore if he's going to allow such types of suffering. I was reading an article this week. There's some legislation that's going before Congress and the President uh, regarding individuals who, as their countries, have experienced natural disasters or great calamities like war or famine or some type of hurricane or tsunami, they sought refuge in multiple countries. And we have thousands and thousands of refugees here in our uh, country who are under what's called a TPR, a temporary residency status, because of their um, situation back home. Now, here's the problem. The problem is these temporary stays, they're revisited every uh, year to two years, but uh, they have these individuals have continued to stay in our country for years and years and years. That's not the problem. The problem is this. Now the legislation is before um, our government, and the legislation is: Do we send them back? Now let's just let's just understand one thing. I'm not going to talk politics here. This is just a statement, and I want you to jump into the lives of, let's say, the Salvadorians, those from El Salvador. Two hundred thousand came here 17 years ago. They have jobs. They pay taxes. They've had 192,000 children in those 17 years that call this place home. And now can you imagine? Can you imagine to be told that after 17 years, you now must go back? And you're told, go back to your home. And you're like, this is home. Can you imagine the fear And the concern. Can you imagine the the trembling of the heart? What happens if I get separated from my children? Can you imagine all of this going through the heart and the mind? And you, what do you do when you feel those things? Some people, if they see that that's a possibility or they see loved ones experience those kind of things... They won't call out to God because they believe God is absent. Some people who feel those things, though, they do call out to God. In their suffering and in their oppression, they ask for God to bring justice. Ask for God to help them. To help them through this situation. But what does oppression and suffering do to you? What does it do to you? Does it lead you to want to withdraw from God or draw nearer to him? For many of us, the situation of our world, the situation of individuals against us, systems and structures, whatever it is, it's just hard, isn't it? And what do you do when it's hard? Withdraw, draw near. This woman right here, she was pleading for justice. And in the midst of her injustice, in the midst of the justice not being answered, she kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. And God wants us to not lose heart when others are oppressing us. But that leads to the next one. The next one is another barrier to prayer would be the, sl- the seeming slowness of God's response. Have you ever felt like God was slow in responding? It happens regularly when you're going through difficult times. God help me. And you don't see the help. Because you were wanting the help yesterday. Let alone not having to wait a little bit. There's a seeming slowness to the response of God. And I get this idea of slowness from the text in verses 6, 7, and 8. Look at it. And the Lord said, do you hear what the unrighteous judge says? That is... Ah, because she has beaten me down with her nagging, I'm going to give her justice. Well, he says, do you hear what the righteous judge says? And will not God give justice to his elect, his chosen, his children who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? What do you think the answer to that question is supposed to be? Will he delay long over them? Answer, no. Does it feel like it's going to be long? Answer? Yes. He says, verse 8, I tell you, he will give justice to them. What's the next word? Speedily. What's the opposite of speedily? Slow. That's right. So what's the problem? Is God a liar? Or do we have a perception problem? I think we have a perception problem. God keeps his word. Belabors the point in the scriptures that at the right time, he sent his only son. Hundreds of years, people were saying, when is the Messiah going to come? At the right time, he sent his son. But it feels so slow. It feels like he's not going to come through. So we're ready to not go to him in prayer anymore and just to give up. It's Kind of like my trip to Tennessee. We go to Tennessee to visit my family, my uh, wife's family, and we do that at holidays, usually around Christmas. And so as we were going, here's how it works. Have four kids and tell them, okay, this trip is going to be between six and seven hours, okay, depending on how many times we have to stop. I've driven this a whole bunch of times, okay? So it's going to take about six and seven hours. You got that, kids? Good. Okay, great. Let's go. So 30 minutes into the trip, my youngest, are we there yet? Now, why would a child, 30 minutes into a six-hour trip, ask if we are there? Because he believes it feels like it should have been six to seven hours by now. <laughs> right? So 30 minutes later, I said, no, we still got a lot more to go, son. Okay, just enjoy. Are we there yet? It just keeps coming. Why is that? Because I'm slow, I'm going as fast as I legally can, okay? It's because there's a perception problem. We have a problem with understanding all that God understands. And there's a point. There's a point where we have to begin to believe that we are a little less grown up than we believe we are. We're children. And compared to what God knows and His perspective... We're infants, and we have to trust Him, which really leads to probably the next and probably the largest barrier into why we don't stop and pray is we just struggle to believe it even matters. Have you been there? I struggle to believe it even matters to stop and pray. And where do I get that? Look at verse 8. God says, I tell you, He will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will He find, and what's the next word? Faith. Say it out loud. Faith. Will He find faith on the earth? The passage right before this in Luke 17 is about Jesus coming again. And He's telling them not to grow weary and not to give up because it seems like His promise to come is a slow one. No, He's going to come. He's going to come He's going to bring justice speedily at the right time. But He says when He comes, will He find people that although they've had to wait, although the world is wearying, although things are difficult and sometimes they feel unworthy, will, they, will He find people who trust Him? Who believe? This is one of the major barriers that we don't stop and pray. Isn't it amazing? The hardest thing to do is to be still. I mean, like, that's what he's asking. Come to me. Stop all the franticness, right? And just be still before me. It's almost like a Christmas gift. Like, really? You let me. And we don't do it. It feels so difficult, so hard, so impossible because so many things are running through, but also because of these barriers. Do I really believe that it matters? Or am I really just talking to these ceiling tiles when I say words that sound religious and say you when there's maybe a person or a being that I'm speaking to? You feel this way. Here's what I want us to do. When we're stopping to pray and we're tempted to say, does this really matter? I want you to appeal. To appeal to God's character, to appeal to his work, and appeal to answered prayers. Let's look at the first one real quickly. Appeal to his character. That is what he is doing when he lays this passage out. He is contrasting the unrighteous judge with him, the righteous judge. Do you see that? So let's walk back through. Let's hit rewind on the tape and go back. And as we are back, I just dated myself on the tape. Half of you don't even know what that is. So I hit rewind. And as we get here, we go to verse 3. And I want you to listen to the contrast. Because the contrast is between him who is righteous with the unrighteous judge. It's an argument from the lesser, the unrighteous judge, to the greater, the righteous judge. And here's what he says. Look at verse 3. Okay, just rewound. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to this judge Remember this judge neither feared God nor respected man And this woman said give me justice against my adversaries verse 4 for while he refused for a while he refused but afterwards he said to himself though I neither fear God nor respect man yet because this widow keeps bothering me I will give her justice So that she will not be a nag. She won't beat me down by her continual coming. And verse 6. The Lord said. Here's the argument from lesser to the greater. Do you hear what the unrighteous judge says? That is. I will still answer you. And then will not God give justice to his chosen one. His children who cry to him day and night. Now he's comparing. So let's appeal to his character. This judge didn't fear God nor respect man. What happens when you don't fear God? Your perspective is twisted. Your discernment is lessened. It perverts his judgment. And yet, even with all of that, he was still able to render a right verdict and to give justice. He didn't respect this woman. She was a bother to him. She didn't value him. So what does that say about my God? My God who is saying, don't let anything stand in the way of coming to me. What does it say about him? It says that his wisdom is not tainted. His discernment is not twisted. His love is not perverted. It is pure. And his affection for you could not be deeper. And he loves you. And so if the unjust judge can render a right verdict, how much more? How much more will the righteous God of the universe answer your prayers, hear your cries, care about your fears, value you when no one else values you, tell you truths when you're tempted to believe lies, appeal to his character, and also appeal to his work. What's his work? It says in verse 7, And will not God give justice to His elect, that is, His chosen ones, who cry out to Him day and night? Who are these people? It's His children. And anyone who is a child of God knows, according to the Bible, that you are a child of God, not owing to your goodness, but owing to His mercy. You're a child because of His great love. You're a child because of His sovereign invasion of your life. You're a child because of His great work on your behalf. So why wouldn't we believe in Him? Why do we struggle so much when we stop and pray to believe that He hears and that it matters? If He is just and He is merciful, why do we struggle? Either His Son was given for us or he wasn't? Was his son given for us? Answer. Yes. Either his son died or he didn't. Did his son die? Yes. Either his son is still dead or he is alive. Is he still dead? No, he is not. These things are truth. These things are objective. He has done them. And if He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him over for us all, He will give us everything that we need. So go to Him. Go to Him. When you're struggling to believe, go back to the basics. Did He overcome sin, Satan, and death? Yes. Did He communicate to us, or did He leave us alone without a word? He communicated to us in His Word. Does He love us, or does He not? And he killed his son to say beyond a shadow of a doubt, I love you. We've got to go back to the basics, appeal to his work. All those things are true. So even though the narrative in the brain is, can he really be trusted? The answer when we step back and think about it, apart from our circumstances is, yes, he can be trusted. His word is true and he loves us. So go to him. We appeal to his character, we appeal to his work, and we appeal to answered prayers. Now, I know what it's like. I have this in my heart at times as well. But when someone says, that was an answer to prayer, you can be tempted to be a skeptic, can't you? You can be tempted to explain it away as a natural phenomenon. Hear the words we put on it to de-spiritualize it and to make supernatural things natural. Oh, that's an anomaly. That's an exception. That's a coincidence. That's luck. What are those words? They're words that we've developed to explain what we cannot explain. It's coincidence, it's something that breaks the pattern. Blows my mind. It's luck. Just kind of happened. Friends, I want you to know This is a safe place for you to bring your questions. Cynics, skeptics, we want to ask questions together. We want to wrestle through things together. And I want you to know our faith is a reasonable faith. It's not just a pipe dream. It's built upon faith, but it's built upon reason. It's a reasonable faith. But I would argue that the burden of proof Your skeptical heart, sometimes like mine, sometimes like yours, is on the skeptic, not on me. Why is that? How do you explain when a selfish person all of a sudden surrenders their life to Jesus and they want to sacrifice their lives for others? How do you explain that? A coincidence? How do you explain that marriage that was in total shambles and then they committed to surrender their lives as a couple to Jesus and you begin to see healing and forgiveness and the mending of what seemed to be hopeless? How do you explain that? An anomaly or Jesus? How do you explain it when Chinese and South Koreans and Indians who are in danger of persecution, they believe upon Jesus and they sacrifice their lives and they are willing to embrace persecution, even the estrangement of their family, which is the greatest desire of acceptance in multiple cultures around the world. And they do that because they now say Jesus has changed them and they love them. How do you explain that? Luck? No. How do you explain the global spread of Christianity from its inception? How do you explain when multiple races dwell together and they say, I will not demand on my own culture. I will allow our cultures to come together as a multi-ethnic, multi-economic group of people to be one new man in Christ. What causes people to say, I want to do that? What causes people to be radically generous? So much so that it inconveniences them and they sacrifice for the good of another. What does that? It is the spirit of the living God at work, not just 2,000 years ago, but right here, right now, today. If you have an excuse for everything, you have an answer for nothing. If you can always explain it away by a coincidence or an anomaly or something like that, you're not being honest with yourself. Our God is at work and he is hearing the prayers of his people and he is answering prayers over and over. I am small. I am one little person in a very big world. One of seven plus billion people and I'm in one dot on the timeline of thousands and thousands of years. And I have hundreds of prayers that have been answered that I can look at. I can look back, and these are just scratching the surface. I can look back when I saw a child who had horrible life-threatening allergies. And I saw people pray over her, and she was healed. I've seen when people would pray over someone who was suffering from a life-threatening sickness and all of a sudden, quicker than medicines could have done it, they were healthy. I've seen a woman plead for 20 years for her brother to come to faith in Jesus Christ and after 20 years he surrendered his life to Jesus and he's a new man. telling you this so that you would always pray and not lose heart what do you do when you lose heart you appeal to answered prayers i tell you about a time when for eight plus years we were looking for a place to call our church home and we were in nine locations in four years and people could barely find us when they wanted to worship with us and driving around one day and we call and there's a sign out there and we call and they say, coincidence? No way. They say, The contract is going to drop tomorrow. Would you like to be put first on the list? That's not a coincidence. It's eight years of prayer for that. But it's not a coincidence. It's the God of the universe constantly showing His love at the right time, not in slowness. But to say, I care for you, and I hear your prayers. Oh, dear friends, that's not just for those who are preachers. I know story after story, as I look out through here, where people could say, yes, God answered my prayers. So don't explain it away because, yeah, maybe I'm in some other category. No, If you knew me, we all JV together, okay? That's who we are. Immature, weak, in need of a Savior. That's who we are. And so, when you're tempted to say, why stop and pray? Does it even matter? Appeal to His character. Appeal to His work. Appeal to answered prayers. And remember, it does matter. He does hear us. He does work in the here and now. Just a couple more and we'll be done. Look at verse 9. He says, And he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. What stands between us and God sometimes as we seek to go to pray, it's that we are deceived that we really don't need his help. I entitled it the self-deception. We deceive ourselves of self righteousness that is we believe we are good on our own strength righteous by ourselves, without him and so we pray less and when we do pray it might sound a little something like this look at verse 10 two men went up into the temple to pray. This is why we continue the theme of prayer. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector, and the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm better than that guy. That's the summary. And it's an accurate summary. I'm thankful that I don't have his issues. I'm thankful that I'm a good person. I'm thankful. That's how a self-righteous prayer talks. It talks with a down-looking view on other people who don't measure up to yourself. And you're like, I would never be so arrogant to pray like that guy. Have you not ever stopped and found yourself praying and saying, God, would you just fix them? They've got so many issues. If their issues were fixed, I would be okay. Have you... Now, come on now. I know. I know. Why do I know? Because I know I got issues too. I know I've been so fr- I can't tell you how many times. Here's how I pray. Because I get so distracted. I, I like write it down or I say it out loud. I have written out letters so frustrated at a certain situation, at a certain person. And boy, I am telling them off. And it is good. And everything I'm saying is true. This is a prayer. They would see that. They would be fixed. But if you are genuinely connecting with God, you can't keep that tone long. Because what happens is, and I've experienced it multiple times, multiple crumpling of the letters, multiple deleting of whole emails. Because as I was bringing everything to God, which He wants. He wants your mess. He wants your fears, he wants your tears, he wants your frustrations, he wants it all. But when I'm giving it to him, what he does is I begin to experience what's precious about prayer. He begins to change me. I begin to actually see what I'm saying and I'm like, eh, well, okay, yeah, maybe I was a little defensive. Maybe I did get a little angry. Maybe I did press too hard. Maybe I wasn't listening to them and caring for their needs. Over and over and over. And God begins to do this. With a loving hand. He begins to press upon my self-righteousness. So that it would turn into dust. And He would be my Savior. And I would be righteous on my own. No more. But only by His good mercy. What can stand in the way of your praying. Is an over-evaluation of yourself. And He invites us. He invites us into brokenness. He invites us into prayer because as we pray, that self-righteousness can be eroded. But what's another one that stands in the way at sin and shame? Because that's where the tax collector was in verse 13. It says this, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his chest saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. Why would he stand far off? Why would he not lift up his head? Because he knew he was guilty. He was guilty of greed. He was guilty of selfishness. He didn't even feel like he could lift up his head. But I want you to see, in case we were ever confused, does God want me to fix myself up and then come to him This man came in his shame and simply said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the next words tell us what Jesus thinks about that. Verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. He loves it when the proud come humbly and say, I'm guilty. Those words are so hard, but they are so life-giving. When you're in relationship with others, sometimes the only thing that will break down that wall is you to have the courage that God accepts you and loves you as you are enough to say to that person, I was wrong. And I need your forgiveness. But, but, but what if I say that, that'll let them off the hook for all the mess that they did because they were wrong too. Trust Him. Trust him. You be honest and humble with your sin and your shame. I was reading a, uh, an article this week, and I laughed out loud. So there was a guy. Cops pulled him over. He was in a stolen car with a friend. In the back seat were checks that were Forged. So, in a stolen car, forged checks, as they bring him out of the car, his t shirt says, Trust me. Trust me. It's like, really? You are a walking contradiction. You're a walking contradiction. And I was just like, that's us. We are walking contradictions. I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad. And sometimes it's that walking contradiction that keeps us from wanting to go to God. Keeps us from wanting to come to Him. And God says, I know you're a walking contradiction. Just say it. And say it to me. Because I heal people. I change people. I cover sin and shame with the blood of the cross. And I love you. And that leads us to the last excuse. And that is, but I'm too immature. Or I'm unwanted. And look at verse 15. Now they were bringing even infants to him. That he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it. They rebuked them. rebuke the children. Make sure you get that. But Jesus called to them saying. No, no, no. Let the little children come to me. And do not hinder them. Let's say this together. Let the little children. What's the next three words? Come to me. That's prayer. That's prayer. And do not hinder them. That's this entire sermon. What hinders you from coming to God in prayer? They were thinking these kids are unwanted. They're a bother. They're an inconvenience. They're immature. But a good father loves his children. I love it when my little boy talks to me. My wife and I were just talking the other day. He's six years old, but he's still doesn't say his R's and L's very well at times, and we really don't want that to change. I know it'll be awkward when he's 20, but it really is cool right now. You know, it's really cool. (laughs) I love him. (laughs) And so he talks to me like that, and the other day he came up to me. This was yesterday. He came up to me, and as he runs up to me, first of all, he's six years old, so he's kind of heavy. Not like overweight heavy, just he's heavy because I'm weak. So he comes up to me, and he comes up and he says, Daddy, would you hold me? He hadn't said that in years. And, of course, what did I do? No, get away. No, I did immediately. I was like, this is going to hurt. This is pull my back. And I pulled him up, and I held him real tight. And I just held him close, and I put his face up next to my face, and I was just holding him. And I was like, that's what God wants. He just wants us to feel like the comfortability to come to him and said, hold me, hold me. And then, like us, he immediately wanted to kind of get back down and run around. And then he said, hey, Daddy, would you play basketball with me? Okay, okay. Dad, would you sit and watch some TV with me? Yes, yeah, okay, okay. And he he just has, like, he doesn't get embarrassed. He just starts dancing and wants me to dance with him. I mean, he just is unencumbered and he wants me to do life with him because he loves to be with me. This is God. He loves to be with us. He's not bothered by us. Instead, he says, come to me as a child. And he wants all of you. You know what the result was from me studying this all week long? I prayed more. This week, I was just stirred to pray more. And this is my prayer for you. My prayer for you is that you would let nothing stop you from talking to God. That you would not let anything stand in the way. This week, I was sitting down at just times that I would not have normally prayed. Sitting down, my wife is on the couch and we're on a Saturday morning. We were sitting there and I was reading my Bible and she was reading. And I look over at her and my heart was just started to pray. I didn't pray out loud. I didn't tell her I was praying. I just prayed. I prayed that God would meet her right there as she was reading. I prayed that God would encourage her. I prayed that God would comfort her and build her up. I just began to pray. This week because of the snow I didn't come in and study here. I studied at the house and it was hard to find a a quiet place to study. I went in my son's room and I sat there and I studied and as I was there my my heart was burdened to pray. I prayed. I prayed that my son would love Jesus with all of his heart. I prayed that Anything that he's struggling with that God would meet him and would give him hope in the midst of struggle, I pray that he would have confidence with the Lord. I just prayed. We were at a basketball game yesterday. My two youngest kids played their first basketball games ever, and as I'm sitting there, eyes wide open, smiling, cheering, it's not like I'm you know bowing prostrate in the middle of the gym or something. I just I just pray, I just pray. And I'm like, God, thank you, thank you that they can run. Thank you that they're here. Keep them humble. Keep them happy in you. I pray that they just have an amazing time out there. I pray that they learn teamwork. I pray that they work hard and that they learn not to give up. You just pray. We were praying this Christmas and there was a hard conversation I needed to have with one of my son's coaches and didn't know exactly how to bring it up. And this guy normally hasn't come to me and talked to me about much and So I didn't know what to do and so we dropped my son off and I show up at the gym and we had been praying We had been praying that god would give opportunity and that he would give softness of heart So that what we were going to talk about would go well I walk into the gym and everybody's kind of playing and the coach is over there. He sees me and walks towards me He's never done this And he starts initiating the very conversation I wanted to have with him And he was open and receptive, and we had a conversation, and it could not have gone better. Coincidence? No. God? Yes. He is at work right now, right here, and I was just stirred to pray, and when I jumped in that car, it was like, God, thank you. Thank you. We've been praying in our home over the break, trying to figure out what are some ways that prayer can be tangible. We've been praying thank you prayers, help me prayers, and help them prayers. Thank you, God, for who you are. Help me in whatever way you need help. And then help them. Help one person. We've just been praying. Thank you prayers. Help me prayers. Help them prayers. But oh, that God would take us and he would rip away all barriers and we would hear him saying, come to me because I love to be with you. There was a time this week when I was a little disagreeable my wife came to me she said I feel like you've been a little disagreeable she was kind and you know what I began to pray about being disagreeable I asked God to expose that and to uproot it and you know what I wasn't perfect at it after that but I was aware and God began to soften my heart I began to be less defensive And then I look out at my neighborhood, and I see my neighbors, and my heart begins to be stirred, because God says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. So I prayed. I prayed for my neighbors. Pray that God would grip them, and change them, and comfort them, and encourage them, and save them, and that God would use me and others in their lives to do it. I prayed. May we be stirred to not allow weariness or unworthiness or oppression or suffering or what we deem as slow answers or just the struggle to believe or self-righteous deception or the cloud of sin and shame or feelings of immaturity or unwantedness stop us from coming to God because here's what he says to us. Don't let anything stand in the way of you talking to me in prayer. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for not giving up on us when we sometimes have given up on you. Thank you for calling us valuable and creating us in your image. Thank you for giving us your Son that we might have life and life to the full. Thank you for loving us with an insatiable love. Thank you for who you are. God, I pray. I pray, O oh God, that in these moments, you would encourage us and build us up. And I pray that you would make us a people who are no longer afraid and no longer timid and no longer deprioritize the wonderful ought to of walking with you in prayer. And so, Father, I pray that what we hear over this next year is just stories of stories of imperfection though it is, of us growing to pray more and more. I pray, Father, that we would hear answers to prayer more and more and we would talk about it. I pray, God, that people would be encouraged and they would walk in victory, not in defeat. Father, I ask that we would believe that you are at work and you love us.